Hello everyone, welcome to Risk Roundup. When security risk from cyberspace merge and converge with geospace and space, security risk intelligence has never been more important for the humanity than it is now in a digital global age. With millions of annual cyber attacks, cybercrime is a real threat to anyone using computers, smartphones, tablets, Internet of Things, and other gadgets connected to the Internet. Either somebody's identity is stolen every few seconds, or someone's confidential data is stolen, or someone falls prey to financial loss as a result of cybercrime. This is a serious cause of concern. It is no surprise that nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia, in short referred to as NGIOA, are spending enormous resources on the gathering and analysis of security risk intelligence. Irrespective of cyberspace, geospace, or space, in short referred to as CGS, security risk intelligence has become one of the most important of the core elements which must be established by entities across nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia. Today, more than ever, security risk intelligence must provide information that can be acted upon by cybersecurity risk professionals if it is going to be deemed of value for cyberspace, geospace, and space. However, it is one thing to gather security risk data and information, but an entirely different thing to turn that information into meaningful and actionable intelligence. To discuss security risk intelligence further, I'm honored to welcome Scott Food to Risk Roundup. Scott Food is the CEO of Protinum based in uh, United States. Welcome, Scott. We are honored to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you for having me, Jeffrey. Wonderful. So, Scott, to begin with, Let's talk about what does cybersecurity risk intelligence mean to the security community. When we say cybersecurity risk intelligence, what does it mean to different security stakeholders? That's an excellent question because it can mean many things for the different stakeholders that are engaging with folks at the security or technical level. They're looking at it as purely a technical problem. Yes. How do they prevent access to information or the information infrastructure? Folks at the business level, though, don't see it at all as a technical issue. They talk about cyber risk, but they put it in terms of risk to the overall business, along with all the other risks that they deal with. It could be risk of the market, of competition. It could be risk of staffing. It could be risk from suppliers. All of these things lead to potential damage to the business. It's top-line revenue or it's bottom-line results in terms of performance, profit, whatever the organization does. But as we start to sit with these stakeholders, we realize that we've got to find a way that all of them can look at the information in the business as a critical asset and understand that there are many very well-resourced threat actors that are willfully trying to impact that information. They may steal it, they may reduce its availability, or they may outright manipulate it. Getting people to the perspective where they're looking at the information itself and understanding the inherent risk of depending on that information seems to be key in beginning a common dialogue. Otherwise, there's a debate that just continues to rage on. It's a fundamental, it's a language barrier, really, where the technologists can't speak in terms of the bottom line business and, of course, the business executives and board, they get mired in the details that they don't understand of speeds and feeds and active exploits, campaigns, payloads, that type of thing. Yes, no, you're absolutely right. And that is the heart of the problem because it matters how security risk intelligence is understood by the security community. If we talk about cybersecurity risk intelligence, it's the real-time collection, normalization, and analysis of the data generated not only from cyberspace, but from geospace and space, because now everything is connected. The computer code and connected computers has connected cyberspace with geospace and space. So it impacts the security and risk posture of any initiative, any entity, any industry or organization or government or a nation. So the goal of cybersecurity risk intelligence is to provide actionable and comprehensive insight that reduces risk and operational effort for any initiative entity across NGIOA. So irrespective of cyberspace, geospace, or space, security is no longer a silo affair. That is the challenge I see you know, everywhere. The people think that it is still a silo affair. Let's just you know, manage our own uh, security uh, information or intelligence, and let's not worry about anybody else. But 
this is all interconnected. It's an NGIO affair, the way I would say it is it's because it's nations, it's government, industries, organizations, and academia. Everybody is, you know, uh, connected because of all these uh, interconnected uh, interconnectedness that uh, cyberspace that you know has brought to all of us. So, is this new emerging integrated security paradigm? need especially the need of uh, integration of cyberspace geospace space understood acknowledged and accepted by the security community because we it's no longer just about the cyberspace it's about geospace and also space i think we're seeing an emergence of that awareness i think we're really at the beginning though i think we see people that have the big picture to use that overly used term but they understand that context they do look at all aspects of it. They don't isolate the cyber aspect of it, purely the digital bits, but they do consider the impact in the physical space, even in the space community. I'll give you an example. In the press just about two or three weeks ago now, I think it was, there was some navigation concerns with a variety of different commercial players that are shipping back and forth around the Black Sea. The navigation concerns appear to be a nation state, <clears throat> could be Russia, likely them, but they're manipulating the US GPS satellites so that the actual positioning information is significantly skewed by tens of kilometers. Now that could be a significant impact to anyone shipping in that general region. And this problem has persisted for quite a while. It's fairly well documented in the press. It wasn't until very recently that people began to talk about what the business impact would be to transport in that region. Of course, there's a safety issue. Ships may think there's someplace that they're not. But more subtly, ships may take quite a bit longer to make a delivery. If they don't understand the path that they're on or if they need to stop and look to the manual charts. If they don't have an alternative such as the Russian GLONASS capability, their own global navigation capability. This is a fairly simple way to manipulate information using a space asset to interfere with that information and induce a cost into someone's business to impact that. They may obviously be looking at it from a nation state perspective with military advances as well, but I don't know that there's much going on in the Black Sea that they could be impacting. Very few people look at that holistic view and understand you can produce effects through any combination of the physical, terrestrial, space-borne assets and the information that runs across them that may or may not be, by the way, on the internet. In this case, of course, GPS is not internet-based at all. It's not an IP-based protocol, but it does produce information that assets such as the logistics departments and the ships that they're dispatching, they rely on critically to get their job done. I do think that we're seeing more and more folks becoming aware of this integrated perspective. The traditional information security people that are worried about multi-factor authentication, things like that, very necessary, obviously, in the technical trenches, but often they get lost in that specific technology and they don't put it in the context, the larger context of the organization that they're defending. Yes, absolutely. I think you have uh, talked about the heart of the problem, and that's a really good example. I'm just thinking about it that if we have that capability of, uh, if we get real time data that this intelligence threat is there or it's becoming a reality, now what is going to be the impact of it? How it is going to impact our current initiatives or our products or services or our organizations? Uh, or our enterprises or government today because of that, you know, inter risk intelligence that is coming our way. So that impact, to understand that impact, we don't have that capability to quickly, you know, be able to grasp that. So there is a, definitely a need for that kind of information and intelligence and understanding the impact. So, but that is something, you know, we'll talk about uh, after the dialogue is over. That is something, you know, really, really necessary for each and every organization across nations today. But uh, let's talk about this, that the, despite the interconnectedness and interdependencies between cyberspace, geospace, and space, nations approach to how best to address the issues of cybersecurity risk intelligence in this CGS ecosystem that I, you know, that the way we, uh, approaches that cyberspace geospace space because they are interconnected 
it is drawn out confusing and inconclusive each security incident brings forth an outcry for better information and better intelligence sharing and each security incident makes the critics question why we don't get the information beforehand before the it actually you know uh, becomes a reality and each security incident makes different uh, nations components questions why weren't we told why were we not told that this threat is there or this you know malware is coming our way or this is happening that is going to impact our organizations or initiatives why were we not given that information all these questions looms but almost nothing changes so the question is why do we have reliable security risk intelligence framework processes tools and technologies that is the question you know that everybody is you know worried about that why are we not getting the right intelligence at the right time do we have the right framework do we have the right processes tools or technologies i think i think there are two major challenges there are several more but the two major challenges that exist in to address the specific topic of latency of information or just simply not being told at all in advance of, of an incident like this the first is maybe obvious to the nation state players but far less so to industry and academia and general organizations and that is that the organizations that may have some information about what's coming often won't expose it because they don't want to expose their sources. They don't want to give away the fact that they may be monitoring some airwave or some network somewhere. So they protect the information, not to protect the information and allow the impact to happen, but to protect the source of the information so that they can maintain that source. The second is, as you've described, the complexity of our ecosystems today has become overwhelming. You know, we, we talk about things being interconnected. Folks like to talk about the web, folks like to talk about the internet, but we miss what's happened to us from a sociopolitical point of view. We've integrated companies and organizations, suppliers and consumers, truly right from you know, the mining industry where we're taking hard materials out of the earth all the way through to the consumer that requires those raw materials in some component like a cell phone. We have integrated those supply chains like never before in the history of mankind. And information flows up and down those supply chains to optimize business or optimize whatever the ecosystem exists to provide. One of the things we fail to do, though, as we protect those ecosystems is to really enumerate the dependencies such that you could look at the impact of GPS in the Black Sea and turn it directly into an impact to a flower company selling floral arrangements in, say, the Netherlands. Maybe they're selling in bulk in the Netherlands in that market. How can we translate that behavior into an impact to that industry? Well, we need to look at all the dependencies. That industry depends upon logistics and the movement of their raw materials, in this case, flowers. That logistical movement has maybe a 15 or 20% dependency on the shipping infrastructure in and around the Black Sea. That's a fabricated number to illustrate the point. If we can track those dependencies, then we can look at the incident, manipulation of, of navigation data, and we can propagate it through what I like to call the nth order effect. You spoke in one of your previous podcasts about a neural network in a sense a very large directed graph that describes those dependencies at any level of fidelity, but captures that ecosystem and dependencies such that when we see a disruption, it doesn't have to be cyber oriented, it could be geophysical, but when we see a disruption in the supply chain, we can reliably predict the cascading orders of effect through that supply chain and look to see what shipping companies are gonna be affected. Will their revenue potentially be affected? How about their customers? What do their customers do? They're bringing something to market. It's a seasonal dependency. They need to have it there for say Bastille Day. They need to have the surge in supply for Bastille Day and they're going to miss it by 48 hours which renders all of those materials wasted. To be able to look at things in that cascading series of dependencies is very powerful. It provides the broader context that so many of us just simply don't have. When we see a discrete event, WannaCry or Petya followed both of those very recently, 
Petya is a perfect example. The folks I spoke to wanted to know what code I'd write. They wanted to understand the code paths to see what kind of an exposure that would provide to the adversary responsible for, who was an attribution with the threat actor. I was far more curious about the impact that was produced on industry by Merck being shut down. They have one in seven shipping containers on the, on the globe. What was the impact? Because it got inside of their network and it did shut down some capabilities. I'd like to see the, some research done on the cascading effects produced by that one incident, not just by the global ransomware outbreak, which didn't appear to, on anybody's scale in terms of numbers. But yes, impacting yeah. logistics like that could have very significant impact to the GDP for any country or really for the world. Absolutely. You're absolutely right about that because cybersecurity risk intelligence is one of the most important of the core element which must be established when building a successful and effective security risk intelligence program. And uh, it is so critical to the success of the viability, survivability, and resilience of the entire nation. You're absolutely right about that. But most entities across NGI, that means nations, its government industries, organizations, academia, they go through these cybersecurity risk intelligence failures. So it's obviously there's something missing in their approach. And cyber... Uh, Cybersecurity risk intelligence isn't just for any single entity across nation. It's not just for governments anymore. The notion that everyone used to think that security, let's just leave it to the government. They'll take the security agencies of the government. They will take care of all the problems. But it is no longer the case. It is everyone has to get involved. And there needs to be risk sharing of all this uh, intelligence that uh, either our agencies are collecting or you know any private industries are collecting. But we just don't have the right framework. So do you see any risk intelligence sharing within, between, and across NGIOA from your uh, observation? In, yes, to, a, to an extent. But I would say it's insignificant. To the scale that it needs to be, it is still very insignificant. So let's take the emergence of threat sharing, not complete risk sharing, but threat sharing. The financial community, a number of these folks, five to be specific, called me in the early or mid-90s, and they asked me to go and, and brief them. They didn't tell me what it was about. But I was in the space. I happened to be doing quite a bit of what we today call threat intelligence gathering. So I went down and sat with these folks. I had to sign a bilateral non-disclosure with every single one of the five banks and the five individuals. What this came to be was the FSI SAC. That was not what it was then. It was completely informal. It was five directors of IT who all had a significant security burden, but it was not their only job. And they realized that whoever it was that was breaking into their banks was probably the same, simply going up and down Wall Street, right? targeting each one of these five global, you know, multinational banks. So I sat with them to talk about this concept of risk sharing. And they said, no, 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 no. We don't share risk. I didn't understand. They explained that we don't want our competitors, and they're looking at each other around the room, to understand the impact to our business that the threat might have. We don't even share the actual compromise data but we do share our observations on threat. We share what we see on the internet. We share the threat actors, we share their behaviors, we share their capabilities, we share those indicators that someone might be attempting to compromise. But in terms of risk, what had they actually done or what could they do, that's still very competitive. So we've seen an emergence over the last 22, three years since then of these ISACs, where we have built organizations, nonprofits, whose sole purpose is to share threat intelligence so that all of the targeted entities in a particular vert vertical market will understand there's a threat actor, they're trying to impact the communication for our industry. What are the common things we share? Financial industry, for example, the SWIFT network. So they share that information at that threat level. But very, very few share the information about real risk. What could it potentially do to our business? Some of it is obvious, like someone's stolen credentials and, and the Bank of Bangladesh, I guess it was, they got onto the SWIFT network and they fraudulently processed some transactions to their net benefit. 
somebody that was fulfilling the transaction. So they do share that. But other things that are more implicit in their business, people still, they have a tendency to hide that from public and even from their competitors. So there's, there's a disincentive, really, to sharing risk, real risk information. And I, I fundamentally, I think risk is, many people use the term risk and threat interchangeably in the cyber domain. And I will admit our domain is fairly new and that's a, that's a naive approach. You wouldn't see that in the safety community. You wouldn't see that in the logistics community. They understand the threat is simply the potential to impact one of my vulnerabilities. Say I have three suppliers of plastic to my business, which makes plastic casings for computers. I have three because I understand there's a threat. One of these three might go out of business. One of these three might not be able to produce. That's a threat. It's not a risk. It's a threat. The risk is that if I only picked one vendor and they don't deliver, I cannot build my computer cabinets and I cannot ship to my constituents, to my customers. And I wind up with a lag in my revenue stream that impacts my cash flow. I can't pay people and I need to lay people off. That's risk. What could it do to my business? So when we speak to the cyber folks, they have a tendency to treat the threat. Well, the threat is uh, Scott Co. out there on the internet has some bad piece of malware. He's going to ransom all of our computers and you know, take over our general ledgers. That's not a risk. That's a threat. The risk is that we won't be able to actually proceed with business, closing our books, recognizing revenue. So to have that conversation, it's very new to a lot of people in this space. They think almost that they're discovering it when, in fact, you know, any risk professional will tell you that's basics. It's been the basis of risk for 100 years. Yes. So yes. changing the dialogue a little bit and educating some folks that this isn't new. It's a new set of threats. It might be new dependencies. And we've opened up an enormous number of those by interconnecting ourselves. Ultimately, what we need to pay more attention to is what could happen to our business, our organization, our charter, our mission, if one of those dependencies becomes critically impacted? That language is very foreign to most technologists. And I admit it was foreign to myself 20 years ago. Yes, you are absolutely right. The, this, the discussion that what would be the strategic impact of any such incident, it is just non-existent. In the risk profile, if you look at it, uh, seven, 25% of that, you know, for, is about operational risk or legal risk, compliance risk, and all that. But all the resources currently are focused on that. What is the 75% that is a strategic security impact of any such, you know, event? That is just non-existent. So that is a, you know, big, you know, problem. That is a, a huge challenge in itself. And what you discussed, the silos of security risk intelligence. That is a, such a huge problem. People are still looking at their uh, competition in this capitalistic system in a very old-fashioned way. We, all the entities across NGIO, they're connected now. It is no longer you know, the viable approach or the right way to move forward when we are talking about the security risk intelligence that uh, it connects the cyberspace to geospace and space. So in the coming uh, days and years, hopefully we will see some changes there, but that is a problem at the point. Now, what is the nature of security risk intelligence programs that you see across nations? As we said, the vast majority is very technically driven. And I've seen an evolution. In the past 20 to 25 years, I've seen an evolution. Early on, when people talked about risk, what they wanted to do was go and scan the environment for vulnerabilities. And it was all about vulnerabilities. I had one customer I worked with that produced a dashboard that was quite a bright dashboard. It was fairly impressive to put up on a wall for the executives. Lots of colors, you might imagine, right? You had reds, orange, yellows, greens, and even blues. But they were looking at vulnerability. And the first time I sat down with that individual who was not a security focused person, but more of an IT director person, they were quite happy to put this up in front of the executives. And there was an enormous patch of red. Yeah. And the CEO said, who's responsible for that? Right? This is clearly a big problem right in the heart of our company. It was presented in such a way that it looked significant. 
That was the visual interpretation by the executive team. So while the director of IT later became their CIO, while he was presenting the information, I looked it up. And I found that the systems that were being displayed, really the visualization was a very large heat map. The systems behind the big red patch on the heat map were actually only laptops. And they were laptops that were dedicated to people in acquisition because they had not yet been given to any employee. They were out of compliance by design. They were in a safe, locked up. They had not been patched because no one was using them yet. And the person responsible for this looked, looked like he was a villain in the organization for creating such risk. And finally, I had to stop the conversation and I said, this isn't a picture of risk. This is only a picture of vulnerability. 95 to 2005, that's what the solutions looked like. That's what most of the IT directors becoming security-focused professionals, that's what they were worried about. Around the time of 2005, we began to realize we could gather threat intelligence, more structured threat intelligence than what we had been doing, as you know, the example I gave you down on Wall Street, my own ex experience down there in 95. That threat intelligence has become a lot more structured, we have entire companies now that do nothing but farm the dark web, looking for information about the threat actors' campaigns, their behaviors, and they produce indicators and they give those indicators to us that are defending, this is what to look for, this is what to monitor for. Very recently, I've heard people confuse, in the security industry, cybersecurity industry, they confuse the term threat now with risk. So we see threat dashboards. We see dashboards about the threat actors we hear you know, the siren goes off about WannaCry or Petya, and everybody's paying attention to it in the press. And they talk about it as though it's a risk to their business. It's still not risk. It's a threat picture. Until we can connect the threat with those vulnerabilities that we were monitoring in the previous decade, we can't even begin to understand, is it relevant to us? Is Petya even relevant to my organization? That's the first question which should be asked when someone hears about threat intelligence. Now, what's missing and what we're beginning to see now, where threat intelligence has been popular for the most recent decade, 2005, say, to 2015, now we're seeing the leading edge, the folks that you had asked about. Are they connecting the dots? We are seeing people realize combining threat and vulnerability is not enough. Petcha is a perfect example. I had a customer. They called me up. They had been in their particular ISAC. They got the information the day after I had begun to see some of the raw intelligence. They got the information from the ISAC. And they immediately said, let's scan the environment. Do we have these particular vulnerabilities they hadn't learned from WannaCry? Turned out they did have the vulnerabilities and they took two of their three incident response people, two thirds of their resources were dedicated to addressing those vulnerabilities and blocking ports and protocols. So when he called me and asked me for my perspective on this, I said, what do those systems do? He said, what do you mean? I said, you have systems that are at risk. They're behind a particular gateway or firewall. You've got the vulnerabilities for SMB. Yes, yes. What do the systems do? He had no idea. So he went back and he asked the questions. The systems were in support of a single customer facing system in their DMZ. That customer facing system had been deprecated. There was no one any, any longer using the system. So even though it was at risk to being exploited by the threat, the impact of their business would have been nominal at best. They could have given the machine up and just watched to see the behavior and monitored the adversary to learn about the adversary. But he used two thirds of his resources for the better part of a day and a half to mitigate something that wasn't in fact a risk to their business. This is, I think, where people ultimately need to get to, to deal with the scale of threat, to deal with the fact you're never going to drive vulnerability down to zero. Understand the consequences. When you can put things in the context of a consequence, you can really prioritize what you need to pay attention to first, rather than playing the traditional whack-a-mole game. That, I would say, is not state of the practice yet, but it is an emerging state of the art as they're just overwhelmed. There is no more money, there are no more resources. Throwing more at the problem is not going to solve it if you're only looking at threat and vulnerability. You have to have that 
fundamental understanding of the consequences, which brings us back to that ecosystem that you described. Understanding what is my role in my company, my organization, even in my industry, or in the government example, what is my role? Who do I depend upon? Who depends upon me? And what are the critical dependencies that I need to defend first in order to maintain the continuity of my organization? Absolutely, absolutely. And you made a very important point that prioritization, understanding which risk to prioritize, that is so critical. And we have to bring the accountability in picture. Like, like you just said, the dependencies, that who am I depending on, who are depending on me? At the same time, what am I accountable for? If I don't manage this risk effectively, that accountability needs to be there that I have to manage this risk because it's going to impact. If I don't manage it, it's going to impact either other departments or other you know, businesses or other industries or even the nation or other nations. So that accountability needs to be there. The incentive needs to be there for entities or even individuals to manage those risks effectively. And that is why we need, uh, we have been you know, promoting that, that we do need a blockchain-based risk management framework, which brings accountability and incentive and everything so that you know people have a desire to manage their own risk. And we always you know, promote this, that not all risks should be insured. People should not be allowed to, the risk that we manage, we are able to manage as an organization, we should manage them. We should just because it takes effort or it takes resources, we should not just purchase insurance policies for that because then we are just transferring the risk and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And then eventually we all suffer. And then, you know, whatever risk have interconnected interdependencies, we need to have a framework or process by which we can, you know, scale those risks or, you know, we can um, allow the opportunity for others to know that these risks are going to impact them. And then those risks, we need to have insurance, you know, get involved in that. There are risks, you know, where nobody will be able to manage those risks. So those interconnected, interdependent risks, for that, the insurance policy should kick in. So we need an entirely different way or different approach of managing security risk. Because if we don't do that, then, uh, if we don't manage our risk effectively, then it's going to impact the security and security will impact the peace. And we will see a lot of turbulence all across nations. It's a very, very complex. There are triangular linkages between risk management, security, and peace. And that is more the reason we need to put together a lot more effort into the risk management process. But uh, let's talk about the how do we collect how can integrated CGS security risk intelligence be gathered? What is the current state of cybersecurity risk intelligence gathering effort? How are we doing that? Uh, is that in silos like cyberspace risk are you know gathered? Cyberspace intelligence is gathered separately. Geospace intelligence is gathered separately, and uh, space intelligence. Uh, how are we gathering all the intelligence? It's still very much siloed, and we we do see, as I said, a few of those early adopters are promoting the concept of integrating this information into true intelligence, into something as contextual, as decision quality. It is truly more of an intelligence statement rather than just pure volumes of information. Where we see the early adopters are around things like the emergence of standards. Sticks and taxi are the perfect example for threat information, not risk information, but threat information. And we see people making an investment in that but they're still talking about reaching between silos. They're not talking about integrating the supply chain and making it a fundamental part of business to communicate the risk impact. I don't care if it was Petya that ransomed the, you know, a disk drive in your financial department or whatever it was. What I care about is can you continue to deliver based upon the cyber weather or really based upon the threat across the board, cyber, physical space, et cetera. Can you continue to deliver to me what I depend upon you for? The plastic resin I mentioned in the earlier example. When we see a tighter integration through the supply chain that adds the recognition of cyber threat and the risk, what risk are you accepting as a vendor? Do you yourself, have you split up your dependencies, right, the consumerization of technology has unfortunately driven a lot of people to um, single vendor approaches in their own ecosystems. 
have you as my supplier made a decision on say one vendor for the gorilla glass on the front of your iphone to understand how you manage your risk is important for me as the consumer you might be my primary supplier because you have the best risk management program and you give me the greatest visibility into that i don't need to know all the details i only need to know when it's going to impact your ability to provide service when we see that level of integration, that recognition, the respect, it doesn't have to be publishing it to the world, but the sustainment of that service level agreement, when we see it evolve to include all of your dependencies, I think we'll see quite a bit more advancement in the art of translating the cyber threat into real terms of risk. It's still a small number of people that are willing to do that and combine it. Most people still want to keep it separate. The whole fact that we talk about cyber risk suggests that we're acknowledging it's just one element of risk to the business. I think we'll see the dialogue continue, but unfortunately, I think we're going to have to see some more significant compromises before people will make the investment in, in time and money. Yes, very true. When people say that when these cyber uh, crimes or cyber uh, espionage and all that impacts almost 2.5% of GDP, then people will wake up and realize that this is significant. We need to do something about this. But uh, I think, you know, in 2017, things have changed. It seems that until last year, you know, we will we were not seeing that much awareness, that much discussion also, or that much exposure about, uh, uh, or dialogue about these kind of risks. But now people, uh, you see, you know, it is becoming headline news that people have started talking about it. So, which is a good sign, but given the availability of all these risk information from all different avenues and sources, what processes have been or need to be established to leverage the useful product into something you know very meaningful like get getting the right intelligence what kind of processes do you see that exist today and what needs to be there you know for the security community to benefit or make effective use of the risk information and extract the right intelligence from that and uh, uh, make something meaningful for uh, their enterprises or initiatives so I think it's it's driven from both the the solution vendors, but also and more importantly from the consumers. The adoption, as we've said, it's just beginning to mature where people recognize they need to have this capability. I spend almost every day working with folks in security ops centers or teams. It may not yet be a formal center, but a team of people. And I would say far less than five percent of those organizations have an intelligence analyst someone who understands their job is not to worry about the semantic expression of a JSON object that they've just received, which is a joint intelligence bulletin or something like that. Their job is to look at threat, to look at their dependencies, to look at their vulnerabilities in those dependencies, to look at the potential impact, the consequences and the available countermeasures, their job is to knit this together from an intelligence point of view. And the military is probably the best example. And there are a few industrial examples, but let's take the military example as one that has been around for decades. We have a function in the military where their sole purpose in any unit, in any country, that unit's purpose is to gather the information and fuse it. And it's not an easy job. It's not a push button job. It doesn't all come together neatly exactly when you want it. Sometimes you have vacancies, you need to go collect it. You need to ask a partner if they have some of that information and intelligence. But your job is to build a contextual picture that you can hand to a decision maker. Who is the adversary? Where is the adversary? When is the activity? What is the impact to us? What's the risk of doing nothing? What are the other countermeasures we have? That's an intelligence picture. If you go into most IT departments or most security teams today, you don't see folks that are given the job. Their number one activity in the day is to build an intelligence picture. You see folks whose job is to do incident response first and foremost. They may be very bright, they may be very experienced, they do understand the capabilities, what to look for, the indicators. 
they know how to take control of their own systems if they can, or they coerce the IT department to get it done for them, but they are not an intelligence provider. Their job one is to act, to put out the fire as quickly as possible. As we begin to see security ops teams mature, where they make the investment in even a single individual, I think we'll begin to see a better recognition of the value of that role. But to date, it's still, there are very, very few examples of people first who have the job, the task, the processes to gather and fuse intelligence to provide contact. Most folks think they're going to buy it. They're simply going to go buy it from one of the big vendors, Symantec, RSA, what have you. It'll be a solution, they'll roll the technology in and it'll auto-magically begin to produce this intelligence. And they're all sorely disappointed. Not that those capabilities aren't excellent in what they do from a threat or vulnerability standpoint, but they don't provide the contextual intelligence that really requires some humans to help fuse it all together. I think it will happen in time, but it's, it'll happen slowly. Yes, it is happening slowly. You're absolutely right about that. Now, intelligence is a form of power, and intelligence comes from information and is a basis for decision-making across NGIO, even for individuals. So individuals and entities across nations, it's government, industries, organizations, and academia. So how can individuals and entities across NGIO ensure that they have necessary security risk intelligence from cyberspace, geospace, or space? There is, uh, there, are, there is some information that we get, you know, publicly, uh, it's publicly available, and there's some intelligence uh, is classified, and some, you know, it's publicly available. So how do individuals and entities ensure that they have the necessary security risk intelligence that they need to, for their you know, daily operations or you know, their initiatives or uh, uh, their organizations? This is such an important challenge. It's a great question. And it's a challenge that, that the most advanced organizations wrestle with today. I can't provide a lot of details, but I can tell you that a partner, let's call him, that I was working with I built them a very large intelligence base. And he had two questions for me, which demonstrated that he wasn't from the intelligence community to begin with. The first one was, is it complete? I said, what do you mean, is it complete? Well, do I have all the intelligence? I said, we have no idea what all looks like. He was actually looking for a percentage number. And I said, without understanding all the data that's available, and I don't know that you can ever do that when you're talking about threat intelligence. You can't possibly give a percentage of how much of the intelligence do you have. The second is, is it accurate? We don't know. There isn't a truth table. As I was building this intelligence base, the folks that were beginning to use it or were watching me use it realized fairly quickly this was probably the only knowledge base of its kind in that ecosystem. Nobody had gathered all these sources of threat and vulnerability and risk and consequences, countermeasures, options, all the way up to the end user community. No one had ever put it together in an, such an environment as we had where you could watch an event and you could immediately pivot on the event in the system and say, show me the named individuals, let's call them customers of this particular service that will be impacted if this event exists in the future or because it has existed in the past. So we had the temporal nature to the environment as well. And he wanted to know how accurate the knowledge base was. There's no way to test the accuracy. Intelligence is never 100% accurate. There's a lot of inductive and deductive reasoning that goes into it. There's human intuition that you add. So you never get to 100% complete knowledge and 100% accurate knowledge. But we do wrestle with that because we are used to that in other domains, in the financial community. Do we have all of the transactions the company has done? Yes, everything up to this morning at you know, 0600. We have all of it pulled into the knowledge base. Is it accurate? To the best of our knowledge, it's all been checked twice by our accountants, et cetera. That sets the expectation when you move into the risk domain, be it strictly cyber or general risk, that you can do the same there. But because of the extensive nature that we've already acknowledged, that you can never know both of those well. You have constantly improving processes to gather more data and to know what data isn't important and can be thrown away. And you have constant 
processes and improve your accuracy or the integrity by double checking, triple checking through multiple sources. But it's truly hard to know when you have enough. Yes. When you yes. have enough and you can make a decision on it. Yes. Very true, very true. You, that is a complex challenge. And uh, in addition, it's also uh, security intelligence is not accepted as is. So from the information and intelligence that is gathered or extracted based on what policy or decision is preferred by the decision makers uh, of any organization, you know, any entity across NGIO, they will decide, you know, what intelligence they want to accept and whether they want to, you know, that intelligence uh, uh, information that to, you know, be taken into account for taking their decision. So that is also a bigger challenge that we are facing across organizations. So it's important that uh, to understand that the need for integrated CGS security risk information is a common feature among individuals and entities across NGIA. Now, when we are faced with uncertainty, risk, feelings of insecurity, or when we are in search of some other goal, all human entities face a knowledge problem and search for information that will support their initiatives or that will support the, uh, their interest or their vulnerabilities. Now, the ongoing issue of cybersecurity and the apparent dilemmas that we are seeing in cyberspace, geospace, and space it demonstrates that the there is a need for uh, role of intelligence in determining future relationship within between and across NGIOA. Now, security risk intelligence has never been more important for the humanity than it is now in the digital global age. Is the role of intelligence agencies broadening or narrowing from your perspective because of this? Uh, interconnectedness, interdependencies that are happening, and security is no longer government's role, it is an NGIA role. I think that it is broadening, and I think that's one of the things most organizations struggle with, is that it changes the status quo. We have a variety of different approaches to gathering intelligence. Some of it is military-driven. Some of it is criminally-driven, right, from a, the point of view of justice. Some of it is driven from an industry, just competitive intelligence on who's in the market. What are they doing? How much of the market share do they have? But as we begin to look at cyber risk, the fact that there are threat actors, antagonists that are not just damaging a single company or organization, but the entire sector that they participate in. I think it becomes far more important that we recognize the gathering and sharing of intelligence as fundamental to the survival of that particular community. But we also can't sit back and simply say, the government's gonna do that for us. Even if the government had the charter, and many times they don't, but even if they did have the charter, they may not have the resources to, to simply stay on top of everything, nor do they have the intimate knowledge of the interdependencies of your community. Maybe it's a commercial community, maybe it's an academic community, maybe it's a community of you know, nothing but nonprofits. They can't possibly stay on top of all of that. So the onus is on us in each of these communities, as we've seen with the ISACs, the onus is on us to build the sharing infrastructure, to build the mutual trust, trust but verify, but build that mutual trust that allows us to do things rather than simply share, I saw 15 new packets on you know, my external perimeter, rather than share that, and I think that's important, but we can share a broader picture of risk with only the people that need to know about it, people with critical dependencies on us in that community. We do need to establish that as, as frankly, it's as a profession that many of these communities are fundamentally reliant upon. Critical infrastructure is one that I deal with a lot. I speak to the critical infrastructure players, and the first thing that they'll say to me is, well, in, in North America, we're, you know, we're, we think the FBI will help us. And I say, no, 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 the FBI will only help you after you've had a problem. Their job is not to be proactive. Their job is not to regulate your security controls and come in and assess you. Their job is to clean up the incident if it's a criminal incident. So don't assume that the government is going to be there to provide all of this for you. You in, say, the electric grid, seven or eight different major providers in the transmission, generation and transmission of electricity. 
they need to get together as a consortium. They build an ISAC, but they also need to look at the critical dependencies they have on each other and how can they address those dependencies with any type of control. It may be just redundancy in their contracts. It may be redundancy in the infrastructure, which of course we've dealt with since the 50s and 60s in North America, but it may be in the shared dependency they have on some of their vendors, Siemens, Honeywell, Johnson Controls, and pushing them to provide more secure capabilities to their community that inherently longer term, of course, will, will improve their risk due to cyber. But we can't simply push all of that responsibility into the traditional intelligence providers, be they military, be they you know, justice-based, we really do need to, to step up to that in each of these vertical communities. Yes, absolutely, very true, very true. From, from your observation, what different technology and tools and processes and organizations are out there uh, that are used by security agencies or any organization who is interested in gathering the cybersecurity risk intelligence uh, today? I see three tiers, let's call them general categories of solutions today. The most obvious are the ones that are starting by fusing threat and vulnerability data together. And there are many emergent in the space. And to your earlier point, earlier this year in February, I attended the RSA conference and I was pleasantly surprised to see RSA themselves pushing the business-driven security moniker. And to see so many of the vendors saying, it's all about business and the impact. That was a very welcome surprise. But they're still at the lower levels of detail, worried about the controls, monitoring, gathering raw data, and fusing that data, threat and vulnerability data in particular, into a picture. So I, they will continue to emerge, they will evolve. And I've, I've seen signs of that in the actual capability they have today. Now, let's call it the third category, not the second, but the third category, is another traditional category, governance, risk, and compliance of GRC vendors. Handful of those vendors out there that have done quite well in the industry. Excellent um, Cadillac-style vendors of uh, RSA Archer comes to mind, where they have chief counsel for an organization like a, a corporate entity that manages their compliance and demonstrates the compliance to regulators using the GRC application. Now, the GRC applications are more declarative very few of them have real-time data feeds coming from that first community that have that present a dynamic and evolving picture of risk. So they both supply information to people worried about risk, but they're at two different ends of the organization. There were very few suppliers in that middle second category that fuse both of those perspectives into a common knowledge base, a dynamic knowledge base that takes all the raw data about threat, that takes all the raw data about my event streams, that continuously scans and discovers systems on my networks, not just my IT network, but my operational technology, my OT networks, or my SCADA networks, my ICS. Using all of this data together, such that all of these stakeholders can use the same knowledge base, but extract a different report or a different view that answers their question. Are we compliant with this regulatory guidance? Yes. And then in real time is incident response dealing with the fact that we've seen the threat, but we haven't seen the compromise. Those communities could participate in this middle category. And I would say, realistically, there are probably five or six vendors. This is the, the space, this middle category that we entered at Pertinuum. And there are probably five or six competitors in the space today. All of us are fairly young, fairly new, at doing this, but we're all taking a very similar approach. That is to fuse the intelligence and to try to supply all the stakeholders with tailored decision quality information. We're not bringing, as one of the examples I've used frequently, I had a very senior level executive that sat down at a SIM, a security and information and event manager console. His staff provided him with a SIM. I said, why are you doing that? Well, he needs a picture of risk. No, no, that's, that's not a picture of risk. That's noise. That's nothing but noise in his world. It's important in our world, 
but it's not the picture of risk. What he needed was something that looks more like a GRC kind of a dashboard because his decisions are at the highest level. Are we gonna make another million dollar investment in furthering the, the PKI deployments that we have or in you know, some other multi-factor solution? His were much larger, very gross in terms of the detail decisions. What we've tried to do in this middle category, the five or six of us, are present something that informs all of those decisions and keeps the decisions interconnected so that they aren't disconnected. We're not making a massive investment in backup or coop technology when our real issue is we've got vulnerabilities all over the place and we know we've got criminal activity of the top you know, two or three APTs and they're targeting us. When those get out of alignment, which they often do, no organization will survive that. Very true. Very true. Cybersecurity risk intelligence is a critical topic. There is so much to be discussed and debated from what is the role of technology to what should be the framework and processes to what should be the nature of collaboration and cooperation and how we should structure the new integrated cybersecurity risk intelligence architecture. It is important that we gather necessary input and collective intelligence to define and design the most important system of the digital global age, and that is the cybersecurity risk intelligence system. While we have kicked off this critical discussion with your organization today, there is so much more that still needs to be discussed. In the coming months, we will make every effort to address this critical topic on the upcoming risk roundups. So having said that, let's discuss what role your organization plays in the cybersecurity risk intelligence ecosystem. So we launched the company about a year ago specifically to bring technology to play, to field a technology platform that enables the integration of the risk intelligence we've been discussing. Now we've spent a fair amount of time providing services to security operations teams, to CISOs or CSOs, even chief risk officers. Before we can even bring the technology in to discuss the people and processes that you've just mentioned. Delivering the technology when there isn't a user community that understands what to do with it isn't going to produce really much in the way of uh, productivity. So we've spent a fair amount of time delivering those services, advisory services to security operations teams. We're going to we'll do an assessment and evaluation of where they are now. We'll talk about what would it take to get to that point where they're integrating even the first few sources of intelligence. The platform itself integrates what we call the seven vectors of cyber risk intelligence. Everything from assets, vulnerabilities, external threat information, what we call the phenomena intelligence, so event management, but not just events, anything that is anomalous in the environment, in the infrastructure. We combine that with consequence intelligence. This is the important topic we talked about earlier, where we map out the mission critical dependencies not just within the infrastructure, but all the layers of business on top of that, inclusive of internal and external dependencies. We provide an online countermeasure or playbook so that we integrate the series of option intelligence for the actual decision makers at all levels, but it's predominantly focused at the tactical level, at the folks that are actually gonna interact with the infrastructure, the cyber infrastructure. And then we also bring to bear something we call temporal intelligence, because often people take that for, they take it for granted. We see significant problems in the data streams in terms of the time stampings, not being able to correlate, they're not using trusted time. We see adversaries deliberately manipulating time so that they uh, disintegrate the coordination of the sensors we have within the infrastructure. But at a much higher level, we wanna be able to integrate the concept of time across all the different stakeholders. So they understand this is conflict that's unfolding. It's not just merely malware attacking or weakness in a computer. Now that technology, deploying that technology platform, but one of the things we, I think we do that's very unique across the five or six players that are beginning to address this particular niche is that we allow for federation. So it isn't just a singular instance we can go into an, any organization, let's take a large commercial multinational, we can go in and deploy not just one single platform, but we can deploy a set of instances 
Some might be the tactical edge, some might be in the regional environments, and one might be a global instance. And we can federate these critical dependencies across the deployments such that the stakeholders at the global level are really seeing a global perspective, but they're not seeing all the way down to routers, switches, protocols, information, in, in, even the packets themselves. But at the lower tiers, they're gonna be far more interested in that lower level detail. So they'll focus on that, but they won't see it across the entire globe. They'll see it in the appropriate region or scope that their, that their job entails. And why is that important? Because it's not limited to an organization's boundaries, to their technical perimeter. We can do this across a community. So even though five or six players may be connected in a supply chain and not share much in the way of infrastructure, we can export status of critical services, large components within a system, maybe the system itself. That can be exported via simple protocols like RSS and Atom feeds. And external consumers can subscribe to the status. That status will then be brought into their environment and can actually change and propagate risk scores through their environment, representing the current risk status of their external supplier. So that federation, that approach to federation, I think will become fundamental as we begin to materialize cooperative risk intelligence, not just within an organization, but across these these nations, governments, organizations, industries, as you have described them. Yes, no, that is an explanation. And that's a very good service, very timely uh, service that your organization uh, has launched. And I'm sure that is going to be very, very welcomed all across nations. What would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners, especially the decision makers who are listening to this uh, video or your podcast? Uh, the, on the risk roundup, what would you like to tell them if they want to reach out to your organization for uh, get benefiting from your services? How should they reach out? What is your website address and how they should contact you? Well, the first message is it's never too early to start. We've met with some folks that have heard our pitch and seen examples of where we've worked with folks that are truly on a global scale tens of thousands, hundreds, even millions of endpoints and tens of thousands of networks. And they think immediately, oh, that's enterprise scale, that's way out in the future. We say, no, actually we can show you examples of a simple LAN that are only maybe tens or maybe twenties of systems themselves, networks, protocols, and the business processes. So small models, like the model you see over my shoulder, it's never too early to start. You can start simple and build and grow organically as your organization matures. And we're, we've engaged with many people to get them started just in the concepts of how they can take from where they are now, how they can take that as a foundation or a baseline and incrementally grow it in a practical way, not try to leap 10 years into the future. So our website is pretinuum.com. Pretinuum is a play on words. It's the opposite of the continuum. We had customers that talked frequently about trying to break the continuum of incident response. They could never get out of the loop of the tactical response and fire drill. And we were joking at one point, about a year before we started the company, we were joking about what would be the opposite of continuum. Of course, the opposite of Congress is progress. So the opposite of continuum would be protinuum. But protinuum, P-R-O-T-I-N-U-U-M.com takes you to our main website. And there's quite a resource center within that for folks that are just trying to get up to speed on a lot of these topics. But we welcome contacts from anyone at any state of maturity, more than willing to help you figure out what that next step looks like for you and to show you what the future might look like. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Scott, for sharing all that information about your organization. And uh, it's a very meaningful name that you have chosen, of course. And thank you for participating in Risk Roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on the cybersecurity risk intelligence and our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the understanding you provided on the challenges from the cybersecurity risk and intelligence community, as well as the changing nature of the security risk intelligence across cyberspace, geospace and space and also possible solutions. So even if a single individual or entity is able to come up with an idea or ideas to better the security risk intelligence process, tools, technology, framework, and platform and architecture, and innovate to develop integrated 
automated, hopefully, security risk intelligence systems for the complex challenges facing cyberspace, geospace, and space intelligence community, space uh, risk intelligence community, and manages associated security risk based on the understanding they received from this discussion we had today. This risk roundup dialogue has been of service, and we thank you for that. Thank you very much, Jayashree. Appreciate the opportunity to talk to your audience. Wonderful, uh, Scott. So interconnected and integrated CGS risk intelligence, that is cyberspace, geospace, and space risk intelligence, needs to play a central role in the cybersecurity or CGS, as we say, cyberspace, geospace, and space security risk intelligence ecosystem. Risk group cybersecurity, geosecurity, and space security risk research centers are created for this very reason to identify, evaluate, and manage the risk-facing NGIOA and CGS, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace, they work together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. It is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feeding to each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security, so if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup videos or hear the risk roundup podcast, Please go to riskgroupalacy.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.